welcome to the Inspire Lancashire podcast series, where I'll be talking to people about problematic alcohol and drug use. We'll be diving deep to understand the psychology of addictive behaviour and using real-life experiences to explain how people overcame them. First off, I'm in the chair with Dr Tony Rao who I first met when he gave a talk at Lancaster Royal Infirmary about his experience supporting older adult drinkers. Tony went on to write Catch Me When I Fall, with all proceeds going to charity. I listened to the audiobook and was delighted when he agreed to be our first guest. So today we are talking about older adult drinkers. If you enjoy the show, Please don't forget to follow us for new episodes and we'd really appreciate it if you can show your support by giving us a five-star rating. Hi everyone, Uh, thank you for joining us on this podcast. Um, I don't say I'm your host, but I'm definitely facilitating this conversation and my name's Andy Martin and I work for the charity Change, Grow, Live, and I'm joined by my colleague, Katie. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, definitely. So I'm Katie Egan, and I work for Change, Grow, Live too in North and Central Lancashire. And I'm also joined um, by Tony. Tony, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hello, everyone. I'm Tony Rao. I'm a consultant in older people's mental health, uh, working in South East London as part of South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust. Well, thank you to both of you um, for taking the time out to do this. And um, really, today's conversation is I want us to have a bit of space to talk about addictions and to have a kind of focus around addictions, particularly with, with older people. And I think my kind of first steer would just be could you both just tell me a little bit about what made you decide to get into a career around addictions? Katie, would you like to? start us off yeah definitely so um way back in the early 90s um i found myself struggling with problematic alcohol use and i did seek help and um and that you know it it took me on a completely different path and it's it's been a long journey but i basically started out as a client um, and then a volunteer and um, did some training, got some qualifications and and just wanted to spend the rest of my life helping other people that were in a position that I'd been at. Yeah, no, that's, it's, it's amazing how um, that lived experience is such an important part of, 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 supporting others thank you Kate and what about yourself Tony yeah so I came I came from a very different perspective I funnily enough I so I started as a consultant in 1998 but little did I know that the area that I'd cover would be an area that was literally I suppose rife with alcohol problems so we had we had a docking population very much in the same way say Liverpool or Southampton uh, and unfortunately, that docking population had a culture of heavy drinking. They used to wake up at five in the morning. They used to, yeah. go to the bed. They used to be drinking all day. So instead of having like, referrals for, say, depression and dementia, I got referrals for 
for people who were threatened with eviction, people who are making yeah. noise at night, people who are falling, so for example. And so it meant that I had to develop a completely new skill set. And that skill set meant that coming from older people's mental health, I actually did an MSc in addictions, completely outside my comfort zone. And I suppose the rest is history. We've tried to influence kind of attitudes, public perceptions, and policy in the area of alcohol addiction older people. Yeah, see, it's interesting you say that, Tony, because I think that public perception, when we think of drinking and, say, binge-heavy, problematic drinking, we think of it as being more with younger people who are yeah. most likely to, be, to you know, show those behaviours. How accurate do you think that view is, then? Well, I... I... I think maybe it used to be accurate. I mean, if you look at if you look at things like if you look at films like Wall Street, we look at films like uh, Train Spotting. That that was the generation who are now that now the baby boomer generation have grown older. So those are the people who used to binge drink and take drugs in the in the seventies, for example, Whoa. and eighties, and they've now grown older. And so we're dealing with a very different population, a sort of fifty five to 74 year olds, you wouldn't imagine, in a million years, you wouldn't imagine that they would be the ones would be uh, treating or the ones that have difficulty accessing, accessing services. No, yeah, but I mean, what's your thoughts, Katie? I think that um, it's quite timely. We, uh, we've just had some figures released, haven't we, that tell us that the, the highest alcohol specific deaths that have been recorded are for those that are aged 55 and over. Um, and the, there's also this growing temperance movement within younger people. Um, so I think what we're seeing is perhaps the the consequences of, of people who perhaps are drinking, you know, during their 40s and, and early 50s, the, you know, there's, there's a promotion of... of um, Prosecco and pink gin and all, all of these yeah. things that are really trendy. Yeah. Um, but then as as time goes on, the the liver keeps the score, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and and people are finding themselves in in some difficulties when it comes to the relationship with alcohol. And yeah, that that's I I think that um, the older population need you know we need a better model for for reaching them and it's it, see when you're talking about that it, it does imply that you know older people with alcohol addiction it, it obviously it takes years to for that addiction to to take shape and do you think that's kind of influenced by any kind of childhood traumas or impact from when they were younger I think that I, I, I kind of got this thing about childhood trauma, and that, the reason for that is it's only in the last five years I've started asking about it. Right. Okay. Because there are other charities that have kind of highlighted this area, and it's it's something that that we kind of think that is not going to happen uh, to older people when talking about their past, because they may be brought up in a kind of like a really conservative generation where nothing ever happened, but it did happen, and a lot happened behind closed doors. Oh. So it's really important. What's your thoughts, Katie? Yeah, and I mean, from from a personal perspective, you know, I I was brought up in a, a home where, you know, the, there was lots of violence between my mum and dad. There there was lots of alcohol use, um, poverty, the and and trauma, and then to to then be 
go into the care system, which I did. Um, I think what that leaves you with is you you don't you don't learn those essential skills in life that that give you resilience to deal with problems in a different way and there's something as well about what you learn um in that environment so i i learned that everything in life might be really difficult and stressful mm. but but alcohol at least is is a release and a reward um it's it's what you do after you've had a tough day it's that that mindset that you learn um and i believe that the trauma i experienced in childhood does still impact on me today i manage it very well because i've you know i've had a lot of therapy and learning myself over the years but i can recognize that those experiences as a child do have a lifelong a lifelong legacy in terms of the way that I can react in certain situations and was and was detecting that childhood trauma and linking it to your alcohol use a big part of your recovery I think that um yes I think that it was it was part of my moving from surviving to thriving. Mm. So the early days when I sought help, nobody talked about childhood trauma. It was all about um, your past is why you're where you're at today. But, you, mm. you know, you can go back and have a look, but you can't stay there. You need to focus on the future, focus on what you're doing today to to change your life and and that did help me that was incredibly helpful because it moved me from a position of feeling like I was absolutely trapped in that that cycle of stuck on benefits nowhere to go in life can completely feeling like a failure to to having some little goals and achieving them and I think that 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 did help me but it was only really probably 10 years into sobriety before I started to even consider childhood trauma because it still impacted on my behaviours and the way that I reacted and, mm. and my mood and my mental health. Actually, can I come in there very quickly just to yeah. say that, just to say from a sort of clinician's point of view, one of the things I felt I felt really strongly about ever since I've taken an interest in this area is the fact that that it is a alcohol addiction is a kind of like a chronic and relapsing condition. You can't like with commissioners, you can't just commission a service that like a cataract or a hip where you yeah. just assume that 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 intervention and that treatment episode is going to cure people. And I yeah. think that's where resilience comes in. That's where relapse comes in. And and people need to see it in a kind of longitudinal life course point of view perspective. That's interesting what you say there, Tony, because I did work in an alcohol service myself in a previous role. And mm. uh, actually what you found was there was a lot of older cohorts within the service. And actually trying to promote recovery to those individuals was, was really difficult. Mm. And, and access to recovery was a real difficulty as well. Absolutely. And, and I think that's sort of leading on to how people get the help that they need. I, I think that people have got a double whammy, that the sort of the fact that, that people are older and they're not meant to show their feelings and the stigma of 
the, of alcohol addiction. And so having to line up in a sort of mixed service, having to line up um, in, in, in a line with the same people who might be collecting their, their um, sort of uh, opi opioid substitution therapies. And, yeah. and there isn't a sort of bespoke service for them. No, and, and, and yeah, that cohort is much wider in the service. And then a lot of their needs and their outlook on things can be quite different as well. And I, I used to sometimes struggle as well a little bit because in, in our sector, there's often, you know, there's that talk about the miracle question. Mm. I kind of want to pitch to you both, kind of what's your meaning and use of the miracle question? And equally, how does it apply when working with older people and alcohol use? What's your thoughts, Katie? So I really like the miracle question and there is a, a time and a place for it. But, but the you know, the, the usefulness of it for me is if somebody is in a, a really dark place, they, they can't see um, a way in which their life is going to be different, just to say, can you imagine, you know, yeah. if you went to sleep tonight and when you woke up tomorrow morning, your life was completely different, what would that feel like? What mm. would that be? What would that change be? And that that can kind of help us to just think about a nugget something that that will give us an opportunity to yeah. then start to move towards change towards that that whatever it is um for that individual to to have that capacity to start to think about moving forward towards it what do you think tony yeah, I think, I, th I think the, the problem with something like the miracle question is the fact that looking at it from someone who is has got a person in front of them who has alcohol addiction, living with alcohol addiction, yeah. and wants to change, they kind of often feel, I mean, let's just give an example of a GP, they might kind of look at the notes and say, oh, this person's living on their own, they've lost their spouse, they've got no family, they've got no paid employment, their health suffering, What? how can they possibly live a better life? And that that is what I would call nihilism. I think I think people, cl the clinicians and the treatment services often give up on people and don't give them the treatment they deserve. I agree. I think as well that there's almost this, for some, there's a thought process of, do you know what? They're, they're such and such an age. Let them have a drink. Let them enjoy yeah, what life yeah. they've got. Yeah. You know, and... It, it's interesting. It's interesting to think about, you know, how how can we ever start to change that? Because for for the majority of of the older adults that that may benefit from conversations to reflect on their relationship with alcohol, it it's not the specialist addiction services that are going to be the first opportunity to do that. It's oh. it's GPs, it's nurses, it's it's older adult social care workers. It, it's people who will come into contact with older adults. And if they, if they don't have the mindset or the confidence to, to have that conversation with somebody about their alcohol use, in the same way as people do now about smoking, then we're oh. not going to know. I mean, I remember reading your book, Tony, Catch Me When I Fall, and you, mm. you talked about... Um, a lady in that book, a fictional lady, but mm. an amalgamation of everybody that you've worked with, yeah. who had multiple um, admissions to hospital and, and nobody had ever asked her about her drinking. Mm. Mm. 
And I think that yeah. that's where, you know, that, that really struck me as, wow, why, why are we not doing this? Why does it not feel comfortable to say, from a health perspective, can I have a conversation with you about your level of drinking just so that I can understand, you know, how, how we need to consider that as part of your plan? Is that because of the social acceptance around alcohol and that a lot of practitioners may recreationally use alcohol themselves? Does that have an impact? I think I, I mean I think there was a time there was a time when there was this joke, wasn't there? If you kind of drink more than your doctor, then there's something something's wrong with you. But but I think I think I, I think the main problem is this. I think that we need to kind of like mix the public health and the kind of like specialist treatment services in terms of our approach. Because you know, so if someone goes into casualty and they're fallen, for yeah. example. Yeah. And um, you kind of like look at what what Miller and Rolnick were trying to do, and that, and that was trying to have a conversation with people about give them a bit more insight into into changing their behaviour at a very early stage before it gets to the point where they hit rock bottom or they they need kind of detox or specialist services. And I've, yeah. I think that making every contact count and no wrong door kind of approach is still something that people need to get into their heads. People whether it's social services or whether it's community teams or whether it's hepatology or whether it's a and e i think it's interesting you say that though tony because uh, there is that kind of perception i think at times and it, that that phrase you use of you know people do say you've got to you know reach rock bottom before you you can get the help you need it, it to me it feels like you're saying that's maybe not the case yeah, I, I, I mean, Katie would probably have a lot more insight than, than I do, but I, I just think that that if people can can make sure, people, no, no one deserves to hit rock bottom, who can make sure that people don't hit rock bottom yeah. by yeah. kind of like having an open and honest conversations and making them not feel judged or, or, or stigmatised uh, and um, listened to, then I, I think that, that, would, that would help. Yeah, I think as well, you know, to, to be... People who hit rock bottom, they they talk about their experience and it's incredibly powerful to listen to and, and helpful for, for many, many people. But also that, you know, an addiction, if it's impacting on your life, you, there is, you know, it's like a lift. You can get off on any floor you want. Um, if, if, don't you don't have to wait for that rock bottom you don't have to lose everything before you need help that so that that re sometimes that can reinforce for people that image of you need to be on a park bench with you know your coat tied with mm, a rope yeah. that they're the ones that need help not me but actually you know the if we look about the incidences of people that are, are going into hospital with alcohol-related liver damage, yeah. they, these people have jobs, they have families, they have houses, they haven't lost it all, mm. but, but they're still really, really seriously in, in, in problems with their health because of the level of damage that the alcohol does to the liver. Yeah. I, I've talked to people who, who drink above safe levels, drink daily, yeah. Uh, but do a lot of exercise and and kind of use that as a bit of a a bargaining tool in their mind yeah. and and I say yeah. but but the liver that you know the liver is not what you're exercising the liver will process alcohol at the rate that it processes alcohol regardless of how much running you do 
I'm not saying it's not healthy to go to a gym. Of course it is, or to do exercise. But but it's it's not going to reduce your risk of getting an alcohol-related condition. Yeah, and there's maybe that issue. I mean, I don't know how you both feel about self-identifying that because I think, and I don't want to be too stereotypical, but with the general public, if you were sort of exercising, holding down a job, you've got a, a high recovery capital, so to speak, but you were doing a couple of lines of coke every night, you might think differently about your use to having alcohol. Does that, do you see what I mean in terms of identifying it in yourself that actually my alcohol use isn't, has now moved to a point where it's moved maybe to being a dependency? I, th- I, th- I was going to pick up from one of the things Katie said about it does overlap, Andrew, with what you're saying. And, and that's the fact that when people look at the actual data, they, they see that the kind of middle class wine drinkers are drinking a lot more. Than yeah. today. And, 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 and that and people kind of think, oh, oh, that's all right. Then. But then it realize yeah. these middle class wine drink, wine drinkers are a lot healthier. They've got they've got jobs that yeah, they've, yeah, they've yeah. got social support. They've got they're healthier. And, and it may be that people kind of from more deprived areas are drinking slightly less, but they've got more health problems, they've got more mental yeah. health problems, and that's why people are dying and um, have really complex kind of lives. And and that's that othering. It's never going to happen to me. It's always going to happen to someone else. Not, not my problem. And how how do you? Because there is how do you attract some of those cohorts you're uh, referring to, Tony? That that maybe you know traditionally didn't engage with services what, what how do you think you engage those populations well th- this is really interesting so one one of the things uh, as a sort of community i mean I'm, i think i calculated i must have done it over 3500 home visits like in 2016 wow. yeah and one of the things that like in the first five years uh, kind of after doing my msc for example i just noticed that these uh, I, mean, I remember in my msc course one of the lecturers said if you want to ditch your drug ha- habit get rid of your mobile phone because you're drug dealers, none of them. And, and in, the, in the same way, I found that older people, how, how is it possible very often to tell an older man, like in his 70s or 80s, yeah, yeah. To, to ditch the pub and the betting shop and go into a lifestyle where, which he never ever experienced? That, that's been his life. Yeah. Kind of like men in sheds or, we, or, or, or kind of like workshop. We, we need a different approach, say, yeah. for example, with men um, to, to kind of managing their recovery. And and is that maybe hanging it on other things like behaviour change type models and promotion of healthy lifestyle stuff around that as well? So it's not just about alcohol use per se. Absolutely. I, I found that the people who, who uh, kind of the outcomes were the best were those people who spent the time out of the house away from the alcohol, simply yeah. away from that kind of light, you know, the, that kind of cue avoidance that we talk about, uh, not walking past the pub, um, say doing things that are healthy, uh, going to more kind of healthy activities and away from alcohol. So I think we need to rethink. But I'd be really interested to know what Katie thinks about. Mm. So I was just thinking about some of the work that we've been doing in Lancashire with the primary care networks. And one of the ones that springs to mind is the work that we've done in the Fleetwood with uh, Dr. Mark Spencer. And and the men, men in Sheds is exactly one of the initiatives that That's was set great. up, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we have a... Fleetwood is similar to, to the geography that you described at the beginning tony so mm. it's a a former fishing town so you okay. have a lot of fleetwood dockers you know that and the 
lots of deprivation, lots of early death markers in terms of national statistics. And that that's exactly what that area has, has been focusing on since 2018, on, on building what's available in the in the community based on what that community looks like. Yeah. So yeah. the the men in sheds does and they have a vets a vets um support group as well. So that that's where some of our clients that never would have come through our door previously, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the other thing I want to say is you don't have to come through our door, but we'll talk about that a bit more later. But they're they're the kind of um local community initiatives that are of interest that that people get involved in and as a natural part of that they find a forum where they can talk and get to know people and not be lonely anymore and i think that's where alcohol addiction differs from say drug addiction or any a lot of other health problems is it's part of our drinking is part of our culture yeah and so to change culture and to change the way people drink we need to put them in a different kind of like frame of mind to how to what they what they cult what so it, we have to identify the particular culture they're living in that will differ as cases from from different from communities to communities it does, yeah. slightly off topic but is there anything we can learn from stop smoking interventions and i mean that in its broadest sense you know you go back to 20 years ago attitudes towards smoking on a whole on a whole population level were very different do you think there's any learning from that behavior change model that could influence alcohol services? I think, well, just this is like an anecdote, another anecdote as well, is that I've, uh, when we published this report called Our Invisible Addicts, and we talked in 2011 about older people drinking more, and then the media media frenzy, they said it was all rubbish, and then you had people saying nanny stay and waving their, waving their fingers at them. Yeah. I've, been, I've been looking at, can you imagine, I've been looking at Daily Mail comments in the last uh, 10 years, <laughs> and I've actually found amongst older people a cultural shift, like before people were saying, just making jokes about it, you know, like we can get sozzled, it's all right. And now it's kind of like, um, oh, I knew someone who died from it, or I, I have to be much more careful about it. So I think I think the more we kind of churn this data out, it's like a drip, drip, drip thing that it hopefully things will change, but but maybe not as much as we hoped they would. Mm. And so in kind of what, I know you both raised really interesting examples. I mean, Tony, you were talking about some of the outreach stuff you, and home visits, sorry, that you'd done. And, mm. and Katie with the, the Men in Sheds, which I just, uh, that's a great title, that. Um, so what, what do you both feel good looks like in providing integrated care then, for, for, and particularly around alcohol addiction? So for me, um, some of the work that we're doing in Lancashire is is looking good. So it's about the the changes in the focus for primary care. So we we don't just look at somebody in terms of in silos. So you come to us for your alcohol problem and you go to the diabetic nurse for your diabetes and you go to your GP for that. That that we actually look at somebody's whole needs. That, that we look at how we support somebody as a whole person um, in terms of helping them to move forward. But the other, my other point is we, we talked about this, this culture of nanny state when we talk about safe drinking levels for, for yeah. alcohol. Yeah. But, but also within that, there's, there, there's a hidden state for people whose alcohol develops to a problematic point. 
So that's when people start hiding from the the fun of going out and drinking in the pub. So it's about being really clear that that you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be at the severe end. If, if you have it in your mind that, that you want to review your relationship with alcohol because it's a concern to you, then that is the right time. That is the right time to get help. And yeah. the majority, particularly when we think about older adults, they're, they're never going to walk through the doors of a, of a treatment service. They, they won't do it. And they don't have to do it. You know, we, we need to develop more services for people that are not in a siloed alcohol and drug service that well, somebody can go and access that support within their GP practice or their community. And that's certainly something that we're doing in Lancashire. But, Tony, perhaps you, you have a, a broader view from your area. Yeah, so I would say that that sort of like from a sort of I suppose clinical medical whatever whatever you want to call it from the kind of um, assessment and uh, brief advice that that kind of perspective I think that 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 kind of home based model that I helped to develop was was a lot less stigmatizing. People will open up a lot more at home. And one of the things whenever I give kind of like presentations on this, I always say to people and they're a bit aghast, say, well, I'm not going to ask the GP about someone's problem. I'm going to ask the home carer. The home carer is the one who clears that clears out the bottles at the end of the week. Talk to the people who have the most contact with, with uh, say, someone suffering from, or someone experiencing or living with, a, with an alcohol problem. Um, but also, in, like, in terms of integration, I think it's really important that if you, if you do identify a problem, in addition to getting people to think more about their health and how, how they can improve their health, I think it's really important to, obviously, uh, to involve the GP who who they will trust a lot more than say other clinicians but when when you do detect there's a problem say from a mental health point of view what I, what I think is really important to do is for example get the fibrous scan done if they, if they need to have a so get services done get get say liver services involved older people's medical services involved get uh, social services involved uh, kind of like day daycare you that that's to me what integrated care should look like it should cover the kind of like physical biological psychological yeah. social and and, and even pe we've had people now like in 10 years ago i started referring people for psychodynamic psychotherapy so they yeah. can talk about the trauma so that's what i think good should look like in people getting the the right identification the right assessment the right care the right treatment in the right time in the right place and it's interesting you say right place because you both kind of alluded to more, you know, seeing people in their home settings. How do you both feel about kind of digital and wider things like going on walks in nature and all that kind of stuff and digital offers? What's your thoughts on that? Uh, I think that we we need to be mindful. For for some, they they will be happy to to access support online. But particularly with the older adult age group, there's yeah. going to be a greater percentage that are, are not going to be up for that. So we we need to make sure that what whatever it is that we're developing, that it's we've got age appropriateness in mind. That that we make sure yeah. that um, we can meet the the needs of people. 
What's your thoughts, Tony? Yeah, I, I agree with Katie. I think we need to be realistic. And what that's one of the things, like working for 22 years in Bermondsey, if you've got someone... Uh, where we talk about like green spaces and you talk about digital. If you've got someone on the 14th floor uh, who, who doesn't see anyone or they've got no lift, no family, yeah. and, and all they do is go to the offlines every day, how, and no, not even a mobile phone, how can you, I mean, we, obviously we enable people to get the help they need. How can you be realistic about connecting that person with the outside world? So, and I think those situations are a lot more challenging than say kind of like the middle-class affluent person who's kind of insightful about their health. They know the system, they get everything they need. It's, they're just diametrically opposite very often. And do you think commissioning cycles or frameworks can help with this and what i'm alluding to there is our framework for recording alcohol intervention is you know it's if you think about domes and the data it captures it's very dated you know it's been, it's been around 15 20 years and it's very focused around this idea of successful completions and representation rates when you're thinking about integrated care how could commissioning cycles etc try and influence some of some of to help what develop what you're both talking about i, I well i, I mean I, I think we've been I've hopefully i've been successful in getting this into policy so now with the new community mental health framework all older people have to be asked about their their alcohol use and their drug use and it has to go a step beyond that in the, in the fact that, that everybody deserve, everybody needs to have access to say brief interventions and psychological kind of uh, uh, assessment and treatment and so on um, but and, and also the work that uh, say Drinkwise Age uh, Drink Well have done in terms of making sure that there are, there are ageless services and say with detox services that, that they don't kind of like put exclusion criteria or say memory services like in our, in our memory service where it doesn't just because someone's got an alcohol problem go and see them at the time they're not intoxicated you are going to get yeah. a valid so th 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 there's no such thing as a difficult to reach group Group, it's our it's our responsibility to make sure that they're not difficult to reach yeah that's a really valid point what's your thoughts Katie I agree with everything that Tony's just said and just wanted to add from the experience of working again in Lancashire that the the development of the primary care networks locally so those groups of multidisciplinary GPs nurses social care that that's what's helping us to to move forward and having that place-based approach where you can look at what can we provide to people in their own community so again tony mentioned earlier about fiber scanning people so that's a process where you can have your liver checked and to be able to do that locally within a gp service is is going to be a lot more successful than sending everybody mm -hmm. off to the hospital to get that done so it's just thinking well, about what can we move away from acute services and deliver locally that, that is going to make services more accessible mm -hmm. to people? And, I, you know, that there is an element of knowing what, what tests and diagnosis are telling you about your body can, can really be beneficial in terms of triggering change. Absolutely. And I don't mind, I, I don't mind, I don't mind admitting this, that, that I've had people I've worked with for a year uh, in terms of like mental health. And then you see them the next week and they say, if they stopped drinking, you say, we ask them why. And they say, well, the liver doctor told me I might die. 
And I think, well, <laughs> that's a bit of a that's a bit of an acute intervention. <laughs> if you I mean, it's a good thing. I can work on that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. we have to accept that that it's a question of what works and um, what people feel more comfortable in in kind of like information taking take, to take in to change their behaviour. And obviously, what's safe as well. If I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to be a bit cheekier now. <laughs> if 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 I could transport you both into the here's a miracle question. Transport you both five years into the future. What would you hope will have changed about public perception around addiction and around older people's addiction around alcohol? Katie, do you want? So, <laughs> what what I would hope um, yeah. would have changed is that talking about your relationship with alcohol feels as natural as talking about any other health condition yeah reaching out for help feels as natural as any other health condition that there is no shame and guilt attached to it that people feel that they are just and and that is actually what what seeking support from an alcohol or mental health problem is about yeah. they are just addressing a, a health condition the same way as any other yeah what do you think tony yeah so i'm gonna give you a very cheeky example that that, that I, you know i want the situation to be that mr Arkwright goes to his gp and um the gp says to him well what do you want to talk about your your, your alcohol problem and in a kind of like trusting facilitative way and that person does and maybe they do some tests and the GP says to them, well, did you know there's a, like a sort of um, confidential uh, service where you can ring up and that person might ring them up and then feel more comfortable then to go and see someone. So a very, very kind of slow facilitative kind of um, method, uh, uh, rather than going saying, well, you know, do you know what, you're, you're drinking too much, here's the service, here's the card, go and see them. That, that's what I started off with 20 years ago. And that's not the way yeah. that someone with a, a kind of like living with um, a, a problem that they feel ashamed about is going to help in the long term in terms of helping helping them to get the recovery that they need. And kind of as a a sector, what I mean, put you both a bit on the spot, but what do you think are three key steps that would enable us to get to that point that you both talked about? I, I so I think that I'm just, just kind of like brainstorming here. I think obviously with say commissioning, I think we need to be better at identifying problems and that is training people yeah. to understand that that identifying the problem is not going to be simply a question and answer kind of session or doing an audit it's yeah. going to be an open discussion which might require several visits yeah. that's the person identification then of course you've got the um commissioning of the treatment and we've seen detox units for example just completely disappear and addiction services sort of disappear uh, and the third one is about like community resources for uh, recovery and getting people to feel that they're not alone. They're not going to be the only one sitting in that in that treatment centre or that that place where someone's like the group or or someone's talking to them about their problem, and, and they don't feel alone. And they can they can grow and change and recover together. No, they're, they're really really good key points. Is there anything? What what's your sort of top your three steps, so to speak, Casey? So. I just want to repeat Tony's really because I think right. that he has hit the nail on the head. Yeah, yeah. The only bit though that that I do want to add is 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 that model of working with 
the primary care network, so that multidisciplinary team yeah. approach um, towards helping somebody in in terms of all all aspects of their life um, is something that I'd like to see grow. Uh, we're seeing incredible outcomes from that already, and um, yeah, that that's my area. Make sure if you are a primary care network leader. Please invite your local drug and alcohol service to have a seat at the leadership table. Mm, yeah, really important. No, I mean, I, I think my sort of final takeaway from some of that, some of what you've said is it's really truly embedding a, a holistic approach where, you know, fa- um, detox medication and sort of, sort of clinical interventions and recovery support and then wider health needs actually all work in a holistic way and, and is very person-centered. I just wondered what, that's what I've taken from it. And actually about the second thing I've taken from what you've both said today is very much about changing that public perception and some of the excuses, for want of a better term, that people use around their, their alcohol use. I was just wondering to both of you, what's the one thing you're both taking away from our conversation today? Katie? So um, what, what I want to take away from this conversation today is I hope it makes a difference. I hope that anybody listening to this conversation feels that they can reach out, you know, reach out and find out what's available for you. I want to mention um, Change, Grow, Live. That, that's a good place to, to look. So changegrowlive.org.uk go on there and filter it to your own area to have a look at what's available and and please get in touch lovely and what about yourself tony yeah well i i just wanted to say that that i've i've taken part in all sorts of different conversations and like research and 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 like policy development over the last 20 25 years and this is the first podcast the first time I think I've had the opportunity to kind of lay it open and, and, and make sure that that everything's covered here um so I don't think I've got anything specific to take away other than the fact that that change needs to happen it is happening but it needs to happen a lot faster so some um call to arms I like that um Thank you so much to both of you for taking the time out. It's been really interesting sharing your thoughts. And, um, yeah, take care, everyone. Thank you very very much, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.